China, the next shale gas superpower? That was the headline uh, of a story that ran in the national interest uh, in 2013 at a time when it looked like uh, China might be the next country to go fracking and to go shale uh, after the United States. In fact, the first paragraph of the story reads like this. Shale gas sparked an energy revolution in the United States, helping end an reliance on imports and making the nation an energy superpower. China's own shale revolution, the world's largest energy consumer, is seeing its product targets, production targets rapidly evaporate as it confronts enormous technological and market challenges. What we're going to talk about now for our last panel is about why hasn't that happened in China? Why is it that China, which has enormous shale natural gas and also shale oil reserves, in fact, some say larger, may have shale natural gas reserves larger than the United States, why hasn't this caught on in a country that, again, finds itself in a situation very similar to the United States in the 1970s? Sharply rising demand, uh, low uh, ability to meet that demand through domestic supply, through conventional means. Why hasn't China turned to the unconventional, gone the unconventional route? What barriers stand in the way? Are, there, are they barriers or are they insuperable obstacles? That's what we're going to talk about here at the end. We've got two experts uh, to shed some light on this, on this whole uh, conundrum, and maybe also, I'm hoping, offer up a couple of solutions and new directions. Uh, the first of the experts that we have with, uh, with us is David Sandilow of Columbia University. David is the uh, inaugural fellow for the Center on Global Energy Policy there. Before he turned up at Columbia, uh, he served in senior, senior positions in the U.S. Department of Energy, including Undersecretary uh, of Energy and Assistant Secretary for Policy and International Affairs. So this is someone who brings, in terms of discussion of China and the time that he spends working on Chinese ed energy issues, also the larger perspective that goes with that. He's graduated of the University of Michigan Law School and Yale College. Uh, he was the lead author of the book Meeting China's Shale Gas Coals, uh, and he's the author of Freedom from Oil and dozens of other articles and op-eds. Um, David Sandilow is someone who I think we can say, I, with, I think with safety, there's probably no one who knows as much about China's shale uh, oil uh, and shale gas potential than David, and I think it's an enormous pleasure uh, and a delight to have him here with us today. David? Uh, you could go to the podium well, or you can do it. Thank you, Arthur. From, from your, from your By, I, first, thank you. I, I really wish my mother had been listening to that um, introduction. Um, uh, by an email chain that I think you are not, Arthur, Jeremy and I agreed that Jeremy would go first. So, go so if that's okay, I can I can introduce myself. Uh, I'll turn it over. <laughs> if that's okay with you as our yeah, chair, yeah. I'll turn is it over fun? to Jeremy to start. Yeah, that's perfectly fine. Okay. Yeah, uh, I'm Jeremy Carl. I'm a research fellow at the Hoover Institution over at Stanford. I do not know as much as David Sandel about uh, 
shale gas in China, although I do know a fair bit. That's why he's going to be correcting me for his no. uh, presentation. But uh, I have spent a fair bit of time uh, looking at this over the years. And what I wanted to do uh, to start out with is, is to, to kind of actually backtrack a little bit and talk particularly about the U.S. experience, because to come back to Arthur's um, kind of earlier comments, I think it helps to understand in a little bit of a deeper way why things took off in the U.S., and then I'll kind of go into where I think, from my perspective, China is on these issues, um, and, uh, and, then, and then kind of go back uh, from there um, and, and look at sort of where the positives are and where the negatives are. Uh, and some of my experience here comes from, uh, I actually was part of a very interesting conference with Breakthrough Institute, uh, which some of you guys may know, uh, took place with all of the shale gas pioneers in the U.S. a couple years uh, back, where we really kind of discussed the, the trial and error that went into eventually uh, what became the shale gas revolution both from a, a government and private sector perspective. Um, and uh, I guess I should also say I'm a little bit, uh, just to put my own biases up front, of a disciple of of uh, Julian Simon and maybe uh, Herman Kahn as well, I should say here, and that I'm fundamentally a cornucopian at heart. Uh, I am a little more skeptical in the short term about China's prospects, and I can talk about why, but I'm optimistic over the long term uh, that, that we'll address things. So uh, with uh, apologies, I'm going to start with this, this brief digression, hopefully, into the U.S. background. Um, Fracking was uh, nothing new, although we didn't start hearing about it in, in the popular press until in 2007 or so. Uh, it was invented in the 1940s. We began fracking wells. Uh, there were horizontal drilling, which was another key component of this revolution as early as 1929. Um, there were a variety of, of kind of natural resources that we had, including abundant water, something that China lacks in its fracking areas, uh, that were very helpful. Uh, there were numerous technological innovations that went into the fracking revolution here, seismic imaging, directional drilling, and some of that actually came not specifically to be done for natural gas, but out of the oil business. Um, and so that's one of the interesting things. But, but DOE, uh, both in itself and in public-private partnerships, really starting in the 1970s, spent uh, hundreds of millions of dollars in today's term, and also the Gas Research Institute, which was kind of the, the gas industry's research arm, in kind of pushing forward um, a variety of initiatives uh, that, uh, starting with the Eastern Shales uh, kind of work in the 1970s through the early 1990s, and a number of key breakthroughs uh, they had working uh, in later times primarily with Mitchell Energy, who the people who kind of generally get all, all the credit in the U.S. for having started um, the, the fracking revolution, but, but it was really a, a variety of public-private uh, efforts that, that uh, made it come through. And it's important to note that Mitchell was a, not a modestly capitalized by the standards of independence, but a modestly capitalized certainly by the standards of major companies, um, uh, oil and gas uh, ex explorer and producer, and that is very important when we come back and talk about China and we look at the nature of the companies that are kind of the big players in the Chinese market and, and whether things are going to be transferable. Um, uh, you know, I think another thing that's kind of really interesting, again, just to show how long these, these revolutions go, uh, the, natural re the National Research Council of the National Academy of Sciences put out a study in 2001, and again, this is well before the official shale gas revolution ever happened in the U.S., and it was talking about that even if you look through 1998, wow, look how spectacularly our research has actually helped move the ball forward, and they'd gone up five times uh, the production already by then um, in, in the 1970s, and then 
uh, quickly by 2007, we were up to five times what we'd been in, in 1998, and then in 2012, we were up to five times what we did in 2007. So it began to be exponential. Obviously, if we saw the same thing happen in China, uh, that would be very interesting. But again, so you had this sort of technological investment going on in the U.S. that I think was an important precursor. Um, in the U.S., we also had deregulation that was really important. And again, I think this will get very important when we talk about uh, where China is right now. You had deregulation of natural gas prices uh, kind of in a process. You had the prices kind of uh, be deregulated at the wellhead in 89. Uh, you had FERC Order 636 that kind of opened up the natural gas uh, pipeline transport to competition in the early 90s. Uh, you had a variety of tax credits, and again, this will come into when we talk about China, because China has been, to me, surprisingly reluctant uh, through the finance ministry to kind of grant favorable tax treatment um, to, uh, to some of these gas plays. And when China's got a lot of cheap coal, that makes it very difficult for, for China. But we did all sorts of things in the U.S. We had quick depreciation allowances for taxes. And I mean, this gets into the arcana of the tax code, but if you're a wildcat investor out there without a lot of capital and you're trying to do things, uh, this really matters. And I think this is one of the real unique things about the U.S. energy industry. More, the majority of the oil wells in the entire world are here in the U.S., and that's not an accident. It's a result of policies, and I would argue for the most part smart policies. I think there's maybe some, some unfortunate subsidies there as well. But this kind of real push to explore and to try is very much a function of our system, and I'm not sure that, that the conditions on the ground right now in China are uh, kind of equate to that. But anyway, Mitchell ended up getting sold to a better capitalized company, uh, Devon, and, uh, and then sort of things went from there. They were able to uh, explore more. Mitchell, for example, had really drilled mostly vertical wells and had just had the capital to do, I think, four to six horizontal wells. And then when Devon bought them, a much bigger company, all of a sudden the capital was there to drill a lot more of these directional drilling. That really kind of opened up. Again, people began looking at the acreage and saying, wow, this stuff is really going to be big. So it's a variety of, of different things. So that's a quick digression into some of the things there's also property rights I didn't get into, but it's a super, super important part of the U.S. story. Um, but there are, there are a lot of unique conditions we have in the U.S. And I think, as a quick headline, we don't have all that in China right now. And I'm sort of surprised that, as best I can tell, they're not really moving as fast towards some of those things as I might have expected them to do, given, and I, and I share Gall and others' uh, skepticism about some of the climate imperatives uh, that these are really going to be uh, dispositive for China, but I do think in terms of the local pollution and some of those slides that were shown, I mean, they have substantial domestic motivation for local pollution to move away and to, to diversify into natural gas. And in that context, and in the context of the very expensive imp uh, imports of natural gas from anywhere else and potentially insecure, it's been surprising to me they haven't moved a little quicker. But let me first start out and then talk about where I, th where I think China has positives right now, and then I have a bigger list of where I think the problems are, and we can kind of go. So first of all, China has the, um, the world's largest shale gas resources. You can kind of see, see disputes, but 31 trillion is the uh, cubic, me uh, cubic meters uh, is, is one of the numbers that gets bandied about. Uh, these have been revised up and down. Like a Simonian, I'm a little skeptical of resource numbers anyway, and they tend to always be higher as we, we find out though, over time and, and not lower. Um, 
they have this imperative to get off coal, which I think is a long-term motivation for it, or at least not to be as dependent as they are currently on coal. Um, domestic prices in China for this stuff, I mean, people, you know, we can frack a well at $2 uh, in the United States, and that's great, but you don't need to be anywhere near that price in China to be certainly competitive if your competition is imports. Obviously, you need to be a little lower if your competition is domestic coal. Um, there's the oil thing. Arthur touched on this, but but uh, there's tremendous, just as we've seen, uh, a lot of the, the global drop in oil prices due to what we have done uh, using a lot of the same hydraulic fracturing technologies to do oil. There's that possibility for China as well. Um, it's interesting that China is engaging in a lot of resource mercantilism in North America right now. Uh, their resource mercantilism in uh, Africa got a lot of play a few years ago, but if you look, there are $44 billion of uh, Chinese investments in North American energy uh, to the five years to 2013. Um, not all of that was successful, largely due to a variety of things, cultural factors, miscommunications, lack of capitalization of certain things, but that's, that's not a trivial amount of money. Um, gas is really important for manufacturing. Uh, I worked in the past uh, closely with the governor of a very big petro state here on energy policy, and I can tell you that one of his uh, big priorities for natural gas and natural gas development is because it had absolutely, the fracking revolution had been an incredible boon for manufacturing in his state. Well, China <laughs> manufactures a few things, and uh, they should be very interested in kind of having those sorts of low uh, prices. Um, the southwestern Sichuan Basin, uh, which is uh, the Sichuan Basin being their, their kind of largest gas reserve by some, some amount, is good, and it's relatively well supplied with infrastructure. It does have some technical challenges associated with it, but um, it's promising. Um, I'd say betting broadly against innovation is, is in general a bad bet. And uh, uh, I'd say, you know, another thing, and I, I hate to kind of close with this as a positive, but I do think it's a positive if all you're concerned about is getting gas out, out of the ground. Uh, environmental enforcement is still pretty lax in a lot of areas in China, and environmental enforcement is a cost. Um, and when you have things like uh, no regulations really on what you do with produced water, which effectively you don't in many cases in China, or if you do have them, they're not being enforced, that lowers costs. So I think all of those things are things that China has going for it right now as far as increasing its, its fracking. Uh, but it has a lot of problems. And again, I'll, I'll return to start out with, with one that was alluded to in an earlier presentation. Uh, one of them is corruption. And I find this to be very undertreated in the academic literature. And I think that's maybe because academics tend to be a very technocratic and idealistic bunch. Um, but I think uh, when you look at uh, Zhou Yang Kang and Liu Tianan, and they came up earlier. These are major people. I mean, uh, Zhou Yangkang basically ran China's energy industry with his family uh, to a, a very, you know, to, to oversimplify for some time. And uh, Liu, Liu Tianan, similarly, I mean, a very, very senior person. Um, when you have this sort of corruption getting in the way of reform, I think that becomes a, a huge problem. Um, you saw this pop up in things. When, when China did its first shale gas auction a couple years back, and they ended up getting um, 60 bids, and I love this. This is from an academic paper. It's actually a good academic paper, so I'm not going to mention who wrote it, but there was this one sentence that I sort of found amusing as uh, somebody who deals a little bit in the real world. Um, 
said, the bidding results are peculiar in several aspects. First, the national oil companies did not win any of the blocks, and none of the auction winners had any experience in oil and gas exploration and development. Well, let me tell you something. Coming from Silicon Valley, we call that a feature, not a bug, okay? Um, that was intentional. I dealt with this same thing. I spent a lot of time on the ground in India looking at their energy sector. You had the exact same thing happen in India's coal block auctions. You had the same motivation going on where they wanted to push out, get more development going on. They did the same sort of auction process. It was went to friends and family of people who were in power who didn't have any experience. And oops, surprise, you didn't actually get a lot of development as a result of that. But I'm sure a lot of people got, you know, got paid. Um, how am I doing on time, by the way? Okay. Um, so uh, other things, not working so well with others. There's a big uh, Chevron PetroChina, Chuandongbei uh, natural gas project. There are arguments between PetroChina and Chevron about how they're going to go ab about that. Uh, I'm not clear as to who's at fault or whether there anybody's at fault. I mean, people just sometimes have technical disputes, but given the problems that China's having bringing things online, I'm surprised they haven't been able to kind of overcome that to a degree. Um, water scarcity, I think this is probably the trickiest problem for them to solve right now. I mean, in, in terms of it being a real problem that can't just be wished away through st some structural reform. Um, to reach uh, a production target that they've sent for a few years in the, in the future, now, this is a published number. I, again, as a technological optimist, I think this would go down over time. But a number that was bandied about was it would require 13.8 million cubic meters of water. For comparison, the entire Chinese industrial sector uses only 35 BCM of water. So a substantial portion you're talking about of water as compared to the entire Chinese industrial sector would need to be used. Uh, the Sichuan and Charim basins, where most of the gas is, tend to be dry, they're mountainous. Again, I think these problems can be addressed, but those are real problems that are not really the fault of anybody uh, in China. Um, another problem is engineering talent. And there have been some layoffs recently, obviously, in the US, so this is not quite as severe as it used to be. But really, all the fracking expertise, to some degree, to a first approximation, I think, was out here in North America. And if you're going to take an engineer off a politically predictable and safe project here in the U.S. to put them into a very speculative play in China where they may not know the resource and they may not know the geology, which is different. It, it becomes difficult to justify at times. Pipeline infrastructure, big problem. Again, this is something that gets bandied about a fair bit. Um, uh, parts of the Sichuan Basin are reasonably well supplied with pipeline infrastructure, but again, it's nothing like the U.S. And some of this has to do with some of the market factors that I discussed earlier in terms of US regulations that caused us to build a lot of pipelines, just like we have a lot of wells, and build a big infrastructure and make it open access and open competition. And they haven't done that in China. Um, most of Chinese gas has been unassociated methane and not associated with ethane butane or some of the other more profitable uh, types of, of natural gas that you can use uh, for some of these industrial processes. That's been a challenge. Um, the U.S. has just been more aggressive about trying to diversify its energy bets. Does anybody know Project Gas Buggy? So I'm going to get some bonus points. Has anybody ever heard of that? So Project Gas Buggy was part of was was done in, in 1967. This is where we exploded a nuclear weapon underground to attempt to frack. Okay, that's how far we were willing to go uh, in terms of trying things that were really out of the box. Now I'm not suggesting that 
this is something that we should be emulating. But I'm pointing out that this was, I think, indicative of a broader American approach of we're willing to try a whole bunch of different things, even some pretty outlandish ideas, in a variety of different energy technologies, energy resources, et cetera, um, to really move the ball forward. Uh, I think China, and again, we'll get to some of the structural reasons why this is the case, has been much more conventional in its, in its outlook. Um, if you talk to, when I talk to the, the DOE guys who were very involved in the early fracking revolution in the US and you said, well, did you guys know that you were really hitting on the right thing? And they're like, we had no idea. You know, this was one of 15, 20 bets that we were looking at. If you look, this is not where the most of the DOE research dollars went at the time. But hey, this was the one that paid off and people were smart enough to realize that it eventually paid off. Um, uh, let's see other things. So let me just uh, kind of close by talking a little bit about the, the structure of the state companies, then I'll turn it over to David to uh, correct anything that I have uh, misstated. But uh, I think one real problem kind of getting at the, the entrepreneurial nature of the U.S. sector, uh, CNPC, uh, National Offshore Oil Company, and Sinopec uh, control basically all of Chinese production to a first approximation. Uh, and that is include not just the production, but the midstream and downstream resources in China. And so it, there, there's, even the oil field service companies, they don't have the Schlumbergers and the Halliburtons operating as independent operators within their sector who are substantial players. Um, you have these big behemoths with government-appointed CEOs and a fair bit of corruption involved, as we talked about earlier. And that's not a recipe for the sort of innovative kind of crazy stuff that went on that eventually got us in the U.S. to make innovations in this area. Um, state R&D policy that has been put out on this has been very vague. There have been some, some noises made about, well, we're going to do the following things to support. Uh, but they've also been very explicit that they expect that innovation should be run through Chinese SOEs. My view is that's not a good idea, not, not the way certainly we did it uh, here, where it was the smaller companies that innovated. Um, Gas price is now twice the oil price in China. That's the biggest spread in 15 years. Uh, there's no open access for pipelines. I mean, they've done some things, but not nearly sufficient. Um, and no ability for these smaller companies to deal with foreign firms. So that's kind of a laundry list. It's maybe not the best organized laundry list, but there, there are a lot of challenges that China faces. Uh, and I think it's been surprising the degree to which the government has been resistant to reform here. I'm optimistic that they can eventually surmount these challenges and that there will be a robust uh, fracking uh, industry in China, but I think it's going to take longer than a lot of the optimists think. So with that, I'll turn it over to David. Um, in the interest of full disclosure, um, Jeremy actually told me he was going to go first, and I forgot. <laughs> so uh, David has been was sorry that his mother wasn't here to hear his introduction. So in the in just in case Jeremy's mother is here, <laughs> I wanted to tell let you know that he is a research fellow at the Hoover Institution. And before that he worked at the program on uh, energy and sustainable development at Stanford. Um, he has degree from Har Kennedy School of Government uh, <coughs> as well as a uh, PhD from Stanford. Um, he's the author of editor of a number of books, including Conversations About Energy, How the Experts See America's Energy Choices. Um, and his 
writings appeared, New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Time Magazine, National Review, The Economist, and a number of other newspapers and magazines, too numerous, too numerous to mention. So, uh, Mrs. Carl, wherever you are, <laughs> that was She'll sufficient. be pleased. Thank you. Now, David, you don't need an introduction now, so <laughs> why don't you go ahead? Thank you. Uh, and, Jeremy, that was a great presentation. I can't think of a thing to correct in anything you said. In fact, I'm going to go over much of the same ground. <laughs> um, and I do have pretty pictures to go along with it, so hopefully that will keep you from falling asleep as we, as we do this. And we'll, we'll find out whether there's any points of difference or disagreement. I, I, I'm not sure that there are. Um, I like to start my presentations uh, about China with a picture of the Shanghai waterfront, um, roughly the first summer that I ever visited there. In the summer of 1981, I, I managed to get myself on an exchange program um, at, at Huadong Shifan Dashui in, in, uh, in Shanghai. Um, East East China Normal University in English. It was one of the first exchange programs uh, between the U.S. and China after normalization of relations. And it was hard at that, it's hard for people to believe right now when we have hundreds of thousands of students going back and forth between each country, but it was hard to, to find an exchange program. And, and that summer in Shanghai, there was exactly one international telephone line in the entire city that we could use to call back home. We would take a cab to the Huping Fang Dian every weekend. And, and that was the only place that we could uh, make a telephone call back home. So that's Pudong in 1983, two years after I was there at the same place today. So in my adult lifetime, the Shanghai waterfront has gone from that to that. Uh, and, and I show those pictures actually to make a couple of points. Um, one of them is don't underestimate China uh, and what it can do. Uh, that, you know, I worked for um, I, I worked for four years. The great honor of, of working for uh, Energy Secretary Stephen Chu for four years, and he's an amazing man who was the no winner of the Nobel Prize in Physics. Um, and and I am not a physicist or a scientist by training, and I worked for him for a couple of months. We were spending you know a lot of time together, and he, a number of times he used the phrase "existence proof." He would say, "That's an existence proof for this," or "That's an existence proof for that," and I didn't know what he was talking about. And so one day I said, Mr. Secretary, what's an existence proof? And he said, oh, it's a very simple physics concept, David. It just means if it's happened, if it, if it happened, then it's possible. If it happened, then it's possible. That's an existence proof. This is an existence proof of the ability of this country that we're talking about today to make extraordinary change. So when there's skepticism about, for example, China's ability to develop its shale gas or China's ability to control greenhouse gas emissions or China's ability to do all kinds of things, um, I say, look at that. Uh, but they make another point about this, which is that takes a lot of energy. Um, and we've already been talking about that today, but the growth curve of China's energy is absolutely extraordinary over the course of the past uh, couple of decades. Uh, so, by the way, is, of course, the rate of economic growth and the decline in poverty. I mean, I, this has already been referred to, but the Chinese government in the past several decades has conducted the most successful anti-poverty program in the history of mankind. And... Uh, improving the lives of countless hundreds of millions of people. Um, it takes a lot of energy, which is mainly what we're here to talk about. And here's the composition of that energy um, uh, in uh, a primary energy, about two-thirds coal, 20% oil, 
Natural gas, which is the yellow right there, is 5%, which is significantly less than the world average in natural gas, which is 24%. So China is uh, underutilizes natural gas um, compared to the rest of the world, and there are significant advantages in utilizing natural gas. And that's mainly what this, this panel um, is all about. Um, uh, China, there are, of course, a number of ways to get natural gas. Um, you can pipe it in by pipeline. Um, you can bring it in as liquid natural gas and regasify it. You can produce it out of uh, conventional sources, or you can produce it from unconventional sources like shale rock and it's that last topic that this panel is all about. I'm happy to talk about other parts of the picture, too, but we're talking about shale gas here. Um, and China has the largest shale gas resources in the world. Um, and here's the chart. It's China's on the left, and then Argentina, Algeria. The U.S. is actually only the fourth largest uh, resource base of, of uh, shale gas in the world. And there's some question about these statistics, but, but and these changed a bit over time, but I think that it's generally... Um, the general belief that China has the largest, if not one of the largest, shale gas resources in the world. Um, there's a lot of question about the quality of the shale in terms of its capability being produced and, and the geology, but it's certainly a vast resource. There's a lot of misunderstanding on this topic. This, I, this is one of my favorite slides. Um, so here's an article in The Economist from about a year ago. Uh, natural gas in China, shale game. China drastically reduces its ambitions to be a big shale gas producer. Pessimism. China's really not going to be doing this, okay? That's on August 30th, 2014. The same day, essentially, the same news cycle. <laughs> Reuters, drilling furiously. Chinese energy giants turn upbeat on shale gas. And, and I would just note, this isn't a projection about the future from these two Western sources. They are reporting on what they think is happening, and they have exactly opposite takes on what they think the Chinese government is doing. Uh, and so the degree of misunderstanding, I think, and miscommunication between the West and Chinese government and, and many sources is extraordinary in this area as much as, as any other. And that's one reason that around this time um, I w was working on a big report on China's shale gas production. Um, in, in English, it's meeting China's shale gas goals. Here's the Chinese language version um, of the report. Here's... Here's the English language version in my hands. If you're interested in a copy, you can go to our website at um, Columbia U Energy. Um, uh, Columbia, no, uh, Columbia, I'm sorry, it's Columbia Energy Policy, uh, edu. Columbia Energy Policy edu is the website for our Center on Global Energy Policy at Columbia University. The Center on Global Energy Policy at Columbia University. It's got both the English language and the Chinese language version of this. I'm really delighted that one of my co-authors on this report, Jing Chao Wu, is right here. Um, Jing Chao currently works with the Brattle Group in Washington, D.C. And when you said, you mistakenly said that I know more about this topic than anybody in the room. It's Jing, uh, just to put, to put Jing Chao on the spot, he's the one who really knows more about this than anybody else. So he should be up here, but he is a, a hugely valuable member of our team on this. Um, uh, so the first question we looked at in this report was what led to the shale gas revolution. We were, we were looking at what led, our basic line of analysis, what led to the shale gas revolution, how, uh, what are the barriers in China in light of that, and what are recommendations that we could offer in order to help address these barriers? And, and a number of these factors, uh, Jeremy has already touched on. I'll just list them. 
um, with a few comments. The, the, first, the first kind of premise um, is we have a large and we have a high-quality shell resource, and it wouldn't have happened uh, without that for sure. Um, we, we have a competitive market system. The, um, uh, the dynamism of our market system um, uh, is incredibly important. You know, and there's, it's kind of apocryphal in this industry, but the, um, uh, the first major shale gas find in the United States by George Mitchell, as Jeremy has already referred to, actually happened roughly 20 miles from ExxonMobil's world headquarters. Okay? Now, ExxonMobil, you know, reasonably large <laughs> hydrocarbon producer, uh, was looking for natural gas at the time, but they were looking for it in Angola. Okay? Uh, somebody else found it 20 miles from their world headquarters okay? uh, and started making money at it. Um, and if, you know, I, I think if, if the, the entire U.S. Um, hydrocar upstream uh, oil and gas sector um, were limited to ExxonMobil and ConocoPhillips, one could hypothesize that we might not have had the, um, the shale gas revolution. But we have a competitive market system with entrepreneurial um, talent like George Mitchell and many others who, uh, who proved that they could make this happen. We have private property rights. That's, that's one of the premises. Um, and, and, and in particular here, um, we have the ability to transfer subsurface rights um, and uh, a whole system. Uh, people are called landmen in the industry, and they go around and they, they buy up area and they buy up mineral rights near where oil and gas development potential is. And we have a market, and it allows us to um, uh, efficiently deploy capital. Um, Federal government support for R&D, Jeremy's already talked about this, but, but for several decades, the federal government invested heavily um, in R&D or invested uh, in R&D on, on a continual basis with the Eastern Shale Gas Project and, and others. And um, the, I, I've read the output of the Breakthrough Institute study that Jeremy said he attended the, the workshop for, um, and they have quotes from some of George Mitchell's people saying, without, without the federal government, this wouldn't have happened, was their role. Um, Federal tax incentives um, played a big role. There were tax credits um, for, uh, for shale gas that ran from the late 1980s to the early uh, 2002, some, roughly, some, somewhere in there. Um, so the federal government was subsidizing with tax credits the production of unconventional gas. And by the way, this, I know, this th th I'll make a comment that's more about the U.S. political dynamic than the, um, than the China, but it's kind of interesting. It might be, if it, since Jeremy works for you for Hoover, um, kind of interesting point, but, but um, there's a lot of anti-federal government rhetoric in our political dynamic right now. I mean, particularly you hear a lot of presidential candidates and a lot of the majority on, Cap on Capitol Hill going, we need to shrink the federal government, you know, that type of thing, and get government out of the way. And it's interesting how often those same people are enthusiastic supporters of the oil and gas industry and celebrate the U.S. shale gas revolution. I think it's an interesting question for those people who are, you know, in the think tank world um, who interact with politicians to try to figure out how to educate on this topic. And, and, you know, and, and how can we make clear that the federal government played an extremely important role um, and maybe this rhetoric about getting betting the federal government out of the way may not accord with the actual reality of this industry. Um, another hugely important point is publicly available data. And this, this is maybe the point that I... Um, so the, the potency of this surprised me in my interviews. We, did, we, did, we interviewed, um, in the course of preparing this report, a, do, a dozen to 20 U.S. shale gas entrepreneurs and asked them this question, what led to the shale gas revolution? 
And I was struck at how many people said publicly available data was important. And that's partly the US Geologic Service um, and what they have available, but even, but much more than that, in most states in the, in the US, when one produces oil or gas, you need to disclose that to the state taxing authorities, and they often, dis they often put that information on websites. And, and that means that the landmen are able to look in the publicly available records and figure out where oil is being produced. And there's some, there's some gaming of this system, by the way. But basically, it's a system that compels people to, uh, you know, under, under penalties, you know, a risk of fraud penalties, to disclose what they're doing. And that means people know where the, the, the fines are being made, with some delay, but they know. Um, and we're going to get to this, but in China, all this is a state secret, which is a, which is a big problem. But, but in the United States, we have publicly available data about where the oil and gas is, and that makes a big difference. Um, we have an extensive pipeline network, and I think this made a big difference um, uh, in, uh, when shale gas was uh, produced. Um, it, they were able to put the gas right into an extensive pipe, pipeline network. Um, and then finally, we have an entrepreneurial culture um, in the United States, which is something, by the way, we certainly share with China. The, uh, Ch both China and the United States have a very entrepreneurial culture. Um, but we have extremely entrepreneurial culture. We reward that. Not every country in the world does, but I think. So we identified those factors. I think they're roughly the factors you had, Jeremy. Um, and, uh, and, and others may be able to point to other factors. But we thought these were the most important um, for the U.S. shale Revolu revolution. So then we asked, so, so OK, what are the key, key barriers to growth in China. And then the first one that came to mind in kind of our interviews in China was high initial production costs. And people often pointed to this. And the, uh, the, the figures are pretty astounding. It's been very, very expensive to produce um, in, in China. And in a way, that's not surprising because early, um, technolo early energy technology is often more expensive. Than, and you need to get to scale in order to bring down costs. And China's at a very early stage of using this technology, but the, the costs are, ex are extremely high, um, and they continue to be pretty high. Um, weak incentives for state-owned enterprises was um, another. So, so um, uh, state, the state-owned enterprises um, uh, in China, in the oil and gas sector, have a number of, um, there are a number of challenges there. One of them is they don't face competition in the same way that um, uh, our oil and gas companies do. So, you know, they've got a lot, they, um, uh, are used to doing business in a certain way, and when you're used to doing business in a certain way and don't um, face competition, you um, uh, have relatively weak incentive to change. Um, there, there are some mandates to produce um, in, in this area, and, and we, I actually heard a number of different views in China about this. Some people said, actually some people, in, when, I, when, I, when I, I presented this at one point to some people from some state of enterprises and I made this point, and they said, what do you mean we have weak incentives? Um, uh, the government is telling us to do this. Um, and then, then other people said, yeah, but you've you got to remember that the head of CNPC and Sinopec outranks government ministers. Um, and it's a different system here in the United States. And, and so there's a kind of healthy, healthy discussion about the extent to which the government mandates um, uh, truly compel um, production from the state-owned enterprises. Lack of competition, I guess that's really, in many ways, the point I was just making. Um, restrictions on foreign business this is a big one, um, which I guess we haven't really touched on. So um, the, um, 
the expertise on, on shale gas production is largely in the hands of U.S.-based businesses um, and, 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 and businesses that are operating extens extensively in the United States. Many of them are, have been very interested in operating in China but have faced very significant restrictions in doing so. Um, th those restrictions um, include just the normal JV-type um, restrictions that any U.S. business faces, the requirement to enter into JVs, um, uh, requirements to uh, proceed through government bureaucracies that move very slowly and not transparently, um, and even um, requirements um, uh, uh, to provide foreign opportunities before they could do business in China. So. Um, in order, and we heard this from a number of sources, that, that U.S. oil and gas businesses or European oil and gas businesses that wanted to produce shale in China were told, we will give you rights to do that, but only if you make a production opportunity available for us in another country. Um, and so it entered into negotiations like this, and a, a, lot, of, a lot of challenges for foreign businesses um, operating there. And, um, Limited data availability, because I've referred to this briefly before, but, but the, uh, the importance of data was underscored to us by a number of American entrepreneurs. Um, in, in China, um, much of the geologic data um, is, is, is considered to be a state secret. And even if it's not a state secret, um, it's cabined within a particular part of one of the state-owned enterprises, and it's very hard to um, uh, get access to it. So there's not uh, good information um, about the quality of the, um, uh, the resource. Um, let's go back to this. I just want to say I, I presented this list of factors about a year ago um, at a U.S.-China oil and gas industry forum meeting. The, U, the U.S., and I think Mr. Zhao was there from the audience. Um, uh, it, this is a meeting that's happened every year for 15 years between the U.S. and Chinese governments. It, uh, sometimes at the ministerial level, sometimes just at the sub-ministerial level. Um, and I presented this, and I was a little bit concerned when I presented this, that I was being very blunt um, in, in these recommendations and that it would elicit a negative reaction um, uh, from some of the Chinese government officials who were there. Um, quite to the contrary, I received an invitation after that to go present this um, to, at, at NDRC. And, and, and I, I then, um, uh, in late last year, uh, went to NDRC headquarters and a meeting convened um, by that ministry and presented this to a number of ministries from around, um, around the government in Beijing. So there, and, and we sat for three hours and talked through these issues. And it, I think it was, it was a very interesting interaction for me because it demonstrated the serious interest on the part of a number of Chinese government officials in overcoming some of these barriers. Um, and trying to really move forward in this area. Um, so we also um, touch on some other issues before I close. We, we looked at environmental impacts, um, and, uh, and we found this not entirely satisfying conclusion, um, which is the environmental impacts could range from very positive to very negative um, for shale gas. And, and I mean, it, it, in the best scenario, um, you know, shale gas production displaces dirty coal, it leads to cleaner air, it cuts down carbon by 50% because natural gas is better than carbon by 50%, or than coal by, by, by 50% when it comes to car carbon emissions, um, and it's environmental win. Um, in, in the worst scenario, it pollutes the groundwater because there aren't adequate regulatory controls, there's leaking methane, and so it's n not even a positive from a greenhouse gas standpoint. Um, so um, it, it's... There's a lot of uncertainty about the environmental impacts associated with, with shale gas production in China. It certainly could be very positive, um, but 
it, and it's worth repeating that, it could be very positive, but that's no guarantee that it will be very positive. We looked at water supply too and, and concluded that water supply was unlikely to be a constraint in the short term, partly because the volumes are too small, partly because a lot of the early production is going on in Sichuan where there's a fair amount of water. Um, but certainly if you have uh, production in Xinjiang up in the drier areas, um, you know, o over the medium to long term as this scales, there could be real, um, there could be real water constraints. Uh, and th so then we had a series of recommendations, um, uh, and I might want to go quick, I've got a fair amount of content here, I might want to go quickly through this, but we had five recommendations. How am I doing on time? Is it? Uh, okay, another five, great. Um, so uh, first recommendation was to accelerate market-based reforms. And there's, um, you know, moving towards market-based pricing could make a big difference. Continuing natural gas price reforms. Actually, back a year ago when we were writing this, there was old gas and new gas pricing in China. I think that's mostly, as I understand it, uh, that system is mostly gone. Um, but there continues to be natural gas price, you know, setting and uh, continuing the reforms, speeding pipeline reforms. There's um, uh, CMPC has historically controlled the pipelines. There's no independent um, pipeline regulator in China. Uh, and so having um, uh, open access to pipelines uh, with an independent regulator like we have in the United States would make a big difference in terms of um, investment. And there's a lot of concern that even if one produces natural, uh, natural gas from shale in China, that pipeline access is going to be a big challenge. Um, Encouraging competition for mineral rights. Um, the the, uh, the bid rounds that Jeremy talked about was intended to be a move in that direction. If you have a, if you have, I, mean, I guess I haven't said this. Uh, I don't think that, that in, I mean in China there's a monopoly essentially or a duopoly for um, upstream oil and gas production rights with CNPC and Sinopec controlling almost all of the upstream production rights. Um, the bid rounds were intended to move some resources away from. The, uh, the, the oligopolists, um, there's a lot of complaint about only um, relatively poor plots being put into the bid rounds, but if you can move within the Chinese system towards more competition for upstream mineral rights, uh, that would be a very good thing for producing the industry. Improving data availability would certainly be um, uh, a big plus. So a second, so all of that was in the category of um, uh, market-based reforms. Providing a clear roadmap for foreign companies would really make a big difference because um, there, and this is the point that I, I make to Chinese colleagues um, uh, in conversation that um, that there's a lot of competition for the expertise of these foreign companies in producing shale gas around the world. Argentina has pretty significant shale gas resources. Algeria and others. The, the world isn't necessarily clamoring to come to China to offer the technology here. Um, and if China is going to attract both the expertise and the capital to produce their shale gas resources, it has to provide a clear roadmap for those companies who are in business to make a profit. Um, and one of the tools for doing this is developing a model production sharing contract. And the production sharing, China has a long history of production sharing contracts between um, foreign oil and gas producers and domestic companies, but they're geared towards conventional oil and gas, and they need to be amended uh, for for shale gas. And we got into a fair amount of detail in our report about this topic, and including longer production period, no relinquishment obligation, and a right to participate in other hydrocarbons. And I can talk about those, but but um, but 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 we we even have the outline of a model PSC in our report. And then using ro rolling overall development programs. Overall development programs are a tool that, the that has historically been used in China um, for oil and gas production. But, but again, they don't fit very well with unconventional 
oil and gas, and um, using uh, a different form would make a big difference. Uh, so here are the, the two, or two recommendations I've just gone over, accelerating market-based reforms and providing a clear roadmap for foreign companies. We had three others. Building regulatory capacity, it's, you know, it's really important as China scales up its shale gas production that it have the regulatory capacity to promote positive environmental impacts instead of negative environmental impacts. Um, investing in innovation. Uh, one point I heard a lot is that it will not be possible to simply take the same technologies that are used in U.S. fracking and move them to China, that there's going to need to be localization, that you know, everything from um, just you know, trucks that can handle the mountainous Szechuan terrain as opposed to the flat Oklahoma and North, North Dakota terrain, you know, that doesn't seem like it's difficult innovation, but that type of simple innovation will be needed. And then more complicated innovation to deal with the different geologies will also be required. So investing in innovation is going to be really important. Um, and so we recommended adding natural gas to the um, U.S.-China Clean Energy Research Center. The, and the U.S.-China Clean Energy Research Center, which you know, J Jerry led the uh, clean coal part of this, um, is, uh, this is, by the way, a major program um, that between the U.S. and China on clean coal. And so, so it, it, this is worth emphasizing apart from shale gas, that the, U the U.S. government has been strong, working very closely with China on promoting um, advanced coal technology and this, this uh, U.S.-China Clean Energy Research Center has been one way that that's happened. Um, uh, and we recommended adding shale gas um, to this program. And final recommendation was coordinating among ministries. This is a perennial challenge. Um, and um, one thing I heard a lot um, talking to different players in China is the Ministry of Land and Resources doesn't talk to NDRC, doesn't talk to the Ministry of Finance, and so there's a lot of discoordinated policies and finding some way of coordinating among ministries um, would make a big difference. Uh, so I'll end where I started. Um, it's, you know, I, I, I think we've just seen a lot of challenges, but, but never say never when it comes to China's ability to move forward. It's, it's extraordinary what it, this country has already demonstrated. Thanks. Thank you, David. Um, questions from the audience? Carl? I don't uh, dispute the issue of capability. Why don't you start over with the microphone? Yeah, I think that uh, there's no doubt that if there is will, there is way, and, uh, and certainly uh, there is will right now, and a lot of it, I think, comes from uh, what I call the Sputnik effect. You know, the, the Chinese are... Uh, it drives them crazy that America can do it and they can't. It's like almost a national obsession. So put it aside. The question is if the economics really makes sense in light of the fact that they're sitting uh, next door to two of the largest reservoirs of natural gas, both in Russia, Turkmenistan, now potentially... Burma is becoming a source and is connected to the Southwest. Um, so I guess my question is, putting aside the fact that they can do it, but do they really need to do it? Uh, if you consider Russia and Turkmenistan to be super reliable suppliers, then no. Um, I would not consider, uh, particularly given Russian behavior, uh, them to be at all reliable supplier. I think Putin made a huge, huge strategic mistake vis-a-vis -vis Europe in kind of waving a flag, basically saying, 
you know, hey, don't you can't count on me, right? Like I'm gonna play, get up and play games. Uh, uh, I think that the Germans would beg to differ with you. There has not been one issue of reliability in supply of gas to Germany. There was a reliability and, and of supply problem with Ukraine. It doesn't yeah, pay for the gas. If you don't pay for the gas, then you, there is a problem. There is a little more going on. I mean, we, we shouldn't probably educate this all here, but, but I would say uh, Europe hasn't done anything to disturb the Russians, and that's not an accident. Uh, so I would say that there's a little bit of a, a variable confusion there, and uh, I think it, uh, the issues with Ukraine were more than just about payments. So, uh, you know, I, I think beyond that, I think that ultimately fracking will make a lot of sense, but I don't think that uh, if I were China, I would uh, be putting all my bets on Russia and Turkmenistan, and I think that my view is probably also the view of Chinese leadership. Yeah, I think Jeremy's exa exactly right in that. And also just to recall this, that, that currently China uses, 5% of China's primary energy is from natural gas, and the global average is 24%. I mean, there's a lot of room for growth in Chinese natural gas, and a strong interest on the part of the leadership in growing these in natural gas, I think they would like to grow it from all sources. Yeah, I mean, they did yeah. a big deal with Russia, right? But I mean, I just don't but, think that and, they and, want and, to depend on that. And right. am I not correct that even with the Russian uh, pipeline deal, which is supposed to ship, what is it, about 66 million billion oh. uh, cubic meters, that even so, it's only in the end by 2030 going to meet about 10% of China's natural gas needs. Yeah, it, it, it's uh, and only in the Northeast, by the way. So right. I mean, right. So so and and I, I moderated a panel on this uh, sometime recently, and I asked the panelists to predict when the first molecule of gas would flow from Russia to China, and the median was around 2025. So it's it's, it's not happening right away. Other questions? Um. Yeah, Jamie uh, just said because in the United States, the first driven force is a deregulation. And, and, and that uh, price and market price talk. Uh, the question is, um, uh, because that is an increase in uh, natural gas price, so maybe we need a more other uh, uh, you know, environment uh, regulation and policy and to encourage uh, people or customer to use uh, natural gas, so the yeah. build up the the, the natural ga uh, gas market. I, I wouldn't disagree in the Chinese context. I mean, simply because, uh, again, climate issues aside, and I know that some people here will not want to put climate issues aside, but the there is such a negative externality to the local pollution in China from coal that I would think that they would be doing anything in their power to diversify into natural gas, especially because I know for foreign, high-skilled foreign professionals, some of whom I know and I'm sure many of whom you know, uh, getting them to relocate to some Chinese cities, especially if they have families, young children, uh, this is, the pollution is a big issue. So it becomes a big, as China becomes a global, I mean, increasingly gl global competitor, uh, you know, solving this problem by, by, by solving the, the coal problem uh, from a local pollution perspective is, is very important. So. Uh, you know, I might not favor such a heavy-handed approach to certain things in the U.S., but I think in China it would make a lot of sense to do that. Yeah. And for David, I think is uh, you are right because we like to see the, uh, you know, break up the monopolized uh, the market in uh, uh, in China and natural gas development. And my question is uh, uh, because now the China have a geological data 
but now it leads to the public and to the, the you know the company they like to involve in the shale gas development. And another is uh, because for the this uh, giant three, they ha have already the land they they occupy because they say they have a right to develop, but they are not, you know, they just occupy they don't develop. And so, do you think they have another way we can force these uh, uh, giant three to do it? Otherwise, do you think we have a time period, ten years, if you don't develop, uh, you know, natural gas or, or oil in this land, you have to that other pe other company to do it? I don't know the answer to the question, and I would put that back to the Chinese colleagues in the room about how to change the system I, the, the, to, to make this possible. I, the, the one tool that I've seen already used partly is the bid round. Um, but I think the third bid round has not yet happened, right? And so it's, they've been talking about the third bid round now for about two <laughs> years. Um, and, and so I think th this is intended to just be at least a small tool to put some parcels uh, in the hands of companies other than the majors, it, it had some of the problems that Jeremy talked about as well, um, but uh, but in terms of, of affecting change in, in the SOEs, I mean that's it, it's this is look this is part of the power struggle that Damian Ma was talking about earlier today. Um, it's part of the um, the third plenum and the the agenda from the third plenum. It's th th those are some very big issues. Well, I want to thank not only our panelists here uh, from this third panel, but I want to thank all of our participants in the conference for sharing their time and knowledge and for broaching a whole wide range of issues uh, in ways that I think lead, lead us to a lot of thought and also, I hope, to a lot of progress in U.S.-China energy cooperation. Thank you very much. And thank you for organizing this, yeah, Arthur. Thank you. Oh, thank you very much. My pleasure.